a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by fantastic sponsors like the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also Jeff Staples Real Estate, and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. So um, I love getting feedback from my listeners, and I don't think I get enough of it. Now, it's not to say that, uh, you know, people don't uh, tell me, hey, I appreciate you sharing this every so often. I see stuff on social media, but I really appreciate when I get feedback, particularly from either my own website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Did you know that, if, for instance, if you were to click on the show notes, you have the ability to comment there, or you can drop me a line. It's, it's really quite simple. Also, um, on the other sources that carry us, for instance, uh, Loving Liberty, I got a comment uh, the other day over on the lovingliberty.net uh, website, and I want to take just a moment to address this because this is some of the really valuable feedback that I'm looking for. And I, I know you're busy, so I'm not saying you should drop everything you're doing and, you know, send me a note. But in this case, I'm really glad that this listener did. Her name is Janet. And here's what she said. She said, I'm a 66-year-old grandmother. I love my country, but I'm scared to death of what's happening regarding the rise of socialism. She says, I don't trust that the Republicans will even do much to stop it. They seem so weak and ineffective. She says, my husband says I'm getting too upset <clears throat> and shouldn't listen to the news <clears throat> or your podcasts because they are overwhelmingly negative and offer no hope for the future. Basically, she says, if socialism wins, our country is over, kaput, finished. Are you able to offer any words of hope? I'm full of anxiety and feel helpless. Now, this grabbed my attention for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the last thing I want to do is to, to give people a sense that that's it, we're doomed, nothing, nothing can change, and, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're all screwed, so I guess we just, you know, accept that it's over. And there's this balance that I have to try to walk every single day between providing, you know, a clear depiction of what is going on around us. And it's serious, okay? There's, there's a lot of serious stuff that, uh, that anxiety that, uh, that she is feeling. Janet is, is feeling anxious and helpless. This is something a lot of folks are feeling as well, myself included at some times. But I have to tell you, I, my, my goal as the host of this broadcast, this podcast, just as a, as a speaker of truth, as I understand it, my goal is never to leave you feeling like, well, that's it, we're done, stick a fork in us, you know, it's never going to get any better. So I need to know. Because sometimes, you know, I can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes um, I get caught up in the news cycle, and, and I do. I get pulled right into the negativity, 
It's it's not my goal. That's why I'm taking the time to explain this, but I still end up doing it sometimes, and I so appreciate that constructive feedback that says, hey, dude, <laughs> you're bumming me out. Now, as far as, you know, what can where can I find some words of hope? This is what my answer was for Janet. My answer was, look, it's... It's discouraging to see how badly things have gone off the, the rails. I think most of us feel that way. And I told her, I'm sorry you are feeling no hope for the future as you listen to my podcast. It's getting harder to balance that need for timely, substantive content with the risk of spreading more negativity in the process. Now, I said, I don't know how long you've been a listener, but I do try to spend a fair amount of time reminding my listeners, every one of us has influence that can be used to make the world a better place. But sadly, too many of us have been taught that only political efforts will have any meaningful impact. And this is not true. When everything we think or do becomes political, we imprison ourselves in a mindset that limits our ability to see the other alternatives. And this is why you see so much anger and fear and anxiety today. So my best advice to her, and by extension to you and to myself is if you are feeling like there's just nothing that we can do, take a moment. Step away from whatever it is that that is, is causing the negativity. If that means my show, then step away from it. At least take a moment to step away, and I recommend do this. Humbly ask God what he would have you do, and then listen carefully for what he speaks to your heart. And I don't say this lightly. It's not, this is not, pray away the anxiety. What I'm saying is, find purpose. But not just purpose. Not just, well, I'll join a party and, you know, we'll go out there and, and politic until we get this thing turned around. What I'm talking about is something that requires a much higher level of commitment than simply going out and rallying behind this candidate or this idea. It, it takes courage. Because, it, it, look, if you ask the creator of the universe, can you show me how I could better use my influence to help make the world a better place. You got to be serious about it. And that means if, if, if you get an idea or if a, if a prompting or a thought comes to you that says, okay, here's what I need you to do. Your first response is probably going to be, huh, really? <laughs> Cause it's, you know, I didn't really expect to get any, you know, any ideas or I didn't really think I would have a direction or an answer. But my point is simply this. If you ask God for ways in which you can help, do not be surprised when you start to recognize opportunities to lift, to teach, to encourage the people around you. And even if it's just one person, one individual that you're helping, your efforts are not being wasted. I believe with God's help, we can accomplish things that have higher value than simply political victories. And I mean this for all of us. I even mean this for people who don't necessarily believe in God. I know a lot of great people who have no particular faith or no no particular sense that, uh, yeah, 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 there's a deity up there watching over us. But they do have a sense that there is purpose in their life. And where that purpose stems from, I leave that up to them. Some will say, well, it's the universe, or there's, there's just something, but there's purpose. My suggestion is tap into that purpose. And when you do, you will find 
that uh, it is <clears throat> it's much easier to weather the storm even though it is a storm and even though it's not pleasant it reminds you that uh, there there's something bigger there's someone bigger as Ammon Bundy put it uh, years ago this was this was standing at uh, Bundy Ranch having a conversation with him the day of the big standoff back in April of 2014 first words out of Ammon's mouth when he came and met with my friends and me was gentlemen we've got to calm our hearts and remember who is really in charge. Now, he was speaking of the universe. Who is really in charge of the universe? And I will tell you that the people who adopt this mindset tend to be the kind of people who love liberty and its divine source, at least in my opinion, more than they hate or fear their enemies. That's where I find hope. That's what I hope to pass on to you. And I apologize, I know for some people it's like, well, Brian, this sounds a lot like a sermon. I know, I should have some organ music and a choir singing in the background. But my point is simply this. You have influence and I have influence that can make a real difference. I'm using mine the best I know how. And and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you. I literally spend much of every waking hour of every day trying to figure out how to better make use of the resources that I believe God has blessed me with. Whether that is, you know, the the talents or skills that I've been able to develop over a lifetime of uh, broadcast and audio production and writing, or whether it's the connections, the friends, the the fellow travelers who likewise believe these are things that really matter. I see purpose in every bit of it. The people with whom I am keeping company, I don't see that as just, well, yeah, it's a happy coincidence. We ran into each other and thought, hey, <laughs> let's do a show or let's, uh, let's hang out and, and, and make some waves. I see something that, that is much more cosmic and much more important in the sense that at this precise moment in time, our paths have come together perfectly. And for me personally, that's, uh, I, I see that as a product of, uh, I see pieces that were put in motion many, many years ago that somehow came together and fit together perfectly at this time. I see God's hand in that. And you don't have to agree with me. You may think, you know, okay, that's, that's fine, Brian, but that's not for me. That's okay. But that's why I do what I do. And Janet, thank you so much for reaching out. And to others, please leave your comments you can do it on the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So it was a pretty interesting weekend, what with the president being diagnosed with COVID-19. Added a lot of fresh fuel to the fire, the hysteria over this virus. We'll be talking about some of that in a little bit. I I have a couple of lighter notes that I want to start out on. And uh, one of them is, I don't know how rich you feel at this point in time. I look at my bank account and... Well, <clears throat> let's just say I don't feel rich, but I but I do realize I'm I'm doing okay. I'm I'm being taken care of, and and uh, and I I'm finding a way to make my way in the world, and for that I'm extremely grateful. 
But the point here is regardless of what your bank account says at this moment, would it surprise you to know that the world has been, in getting, has been getting richer for some time? Like actually for hundreds of years, there has been an enrichment going on. Deidre Nansen McCloskey has a brilliant explanation about uh, how that happens. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. The formula for a richer world, equality, liberty, justice. I want you to listen closely to her definition of equality because it is not mandated equality by government. It's, it's, uh, It's a little bit different type of equality. But here's her point. She says the world is rich and will become still richer. Quit worrying. Not all of us are rich yet, of course. A billion or so people on the planet drag along on the equivalent of $3 a day or less. But she says as recently as 1800, almost everybody did. The great enrichment began in 17th century Holland. And by the 18th century, it moved to England, Scotland, and the American colonies. Now it has spread to much of the rest of the world. Economists and historians agree on its startling magnitude. By 2010, the average daily income in a wide range of countries, including Japan, the United States, Botswana, and Brazil, had soared 1,000 to 3,000 percent over the levels of 1800. People moved from tents and mud huts to split levels in city condominiums, from waterborne diseases to 80-year lifespans, from ignorance to literacy. Now, you might think, well, the rich have become richer and the poor even poorer. But she says, but by the standard of basic comfort in essentials, even the poorest people on the planet have gained the most. In places like Ireland, Singapore, Finland, and Italy, even people who are relatively poor have adequate food, education, lodging, and medical care, none of which their ancestors had, not remotely. Inequality of financial wealth goes up and down, but over the long term, it has been reduced. Financial inequality was greater in 1800 and 1900 than it is now. And even as the French economist Thomas Piketty, or Piketty had, has acknowledged, by the important standard, the more important standard of basic comfort and consumption, inequality within and between countries has fallen nearly continuously. Gosh, you don't hear that a whole lot, do you? At least from official sources. They seem to really hype the idea that, oh, no, only the rich are getting richer and everybody else is, is getting screwed. And, you know, this is not to defend crony capitalism, but my point is there's good news that uh, they choose not to see. I wonder why that is. I wonder how that serves their purposes. In any case, the problem is poverty, not inequality as such. Not how many yachts the L'Oreal heiress uh, Lilaine Betancourt has, but whether the average French woman has enough to eat. At the time of Le Miserable, she didn't. In the last 40 years, the World Bank estimates the proportion of population living on an appalling dollar or two dollars a day has halved. Paul Collier, an Oxford <clears throat> economist, urges us to use the, to, or rather to help the bottom billion of the more than seven billion people on Earth and of course, that's our duty. But he notes that 50 years ago, 4 billion out of 5 billion people lived in such miserable conditions. In 1800, it was 95% of 1 billion. The point here is we can improve the conditions of the working class. Raising low productivity by enabling human creativity is 
what has mainly worked. Now, by contrast, taking from the rich and giving to the poor only helps a little. And anyway, expropriation is a one-time trick. Enrichment from market-tested betterment will go on and on, and over the next century or so will bring comfort and essentials to virtually everyone on the planet and more to an expanding middle class. Now, she uses the example of China and says, look at the astonishing improvements in China since 1978 and in India since 1991. Between them, they are home to about four out of every ten humans. Even in the United States, real wages have continued in recent decades to grow, if slowly, contrary to what you might have heard. Donald Boudreau, an economist at George Mason University and others who've looked beyond the superficial, have shown that real wages are continuing to rise thanks largely to major improvements in the quality of goods and services and non-wage benefits. Real purchasing power is double what it was fondly remembered in the 1950s, when many American children went to bed hungry. So she asks, what caused this great enrichment? It wasn't exploitation of the poor, not investment, not existing institutions, but a mere idea, which the philosopher and economist Adam Smith called the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice. In a word, it was liberalism in the free market European sense. Give masses of ordinary people equality before the law and equality of social dignity, and leave them alone. And it turns out that they become extraordinarily creative and energetic. The liberal idea was spawned by some happy accidents in northwestern Europe from 1517 to 1789, namely the four R's, the Reformation, the Dutch Revolt, the revolutions of England and France, and the proliferation of reading. These four R's liberated ordinary people, among them the venturing bourgeoisie, She says, the bourgeoisie deal is briefly this. In the first act, let me try this or that improvement. I'll keep the profit, thank you very much, though in the second act, those pesky competitors will erode it by entering and disrupting, kind of like Uber has done to the taxi industry. By the third act, after my betterments have spread, they will make you rich. And they did. Now she says, you may object that ideas are a dime a dozen. And to make them fruitful, we must start with adequate physical and human capital and good institutions. Yeah, that's a popular idea at the World Bank, but it's a mistaken one. True, we eventually need capital and institutions to embody the ideas, such as a marble building with central heating and cooling to house the Supreme Court. But the the intermediate and dependent causes like capital and institutions have not been the root cause. The root cause of enrichment was and is the liberal idea, spawning the university, the railway, the high-rise, the internet, and most importantly, our liberties. What original accumulation of capital inflamed the minds of William Lloyd Garrison and Sojourner Truth? What institutions, except the recent liberal ones of university education and uncensored book publishing, caused feminism or the anti-war movement? She says, since Karl Marx, we've made a habit of seeking material causes for human progress. But the modern world came from treating more and more people with respect. I have to admit, I had never looked at it that way. Now, Deidre Nansen McCluskey says, look, not all ideas are sweet, of course. Fascism, racism, eugenics, and nationalism are ideas with alarming recent popularity. But she says, sweet practical ideas for profitable technologies and institutions, and the liberal idea that allowed ordinary people for the first time to have a go caused the great enrichment. 
And she says, we need to, in spirit, classes of people, not the elite, who are plenty in spirited already. Equality before the law and equality of social dignity are the root of economic as well as spiritual flourishing, whatever tyrants may think to the contrary. This is reprinted from the New York Times. Again, this is uh, Deidre McCluskey. I think this is, uh, this is a pretty powerful uh, look at uh, what is it that's making us richer. Notice how it's not necessarily this political policy or that political policy, but more a function of government staying out of the way. Now, there's a lesson we could all learn from. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So we were talking in the last segment about uh, the enrichment going on around us. And this seemed like a, a natural place to jump into a discussion about, uh, about well, how do you become rich? How do you actually, you know, how do you get out there and, and make your way? I know there's a lot of people who say, well, the first thing you do is you lobby for a $15 an hour minimum wage. And I get it, you know, hey, 15 bucks an hour for entry-level positions. It sounds great on the surface, right? That's going to help people out. They're going to have more money to spend. The economy will flourish. But people don't look at the uh, the backside of that equation, and that's like, okay, so but you're raising the costs of doing business for that person's employer, which means they have to make a decision. Do they just eat those costs? See, there seems to be an assumption. Well, they, they must be made of money or they wouldn't be in business. But no, they have to choose. So do I expand my business? Can I afford to expand my business if I'm <clears throat> paying my employees some mandated $15 an hour minimum wage? What's more likely to happen is they will cut back on the number of positions or eliminate positions altogether and not expand. It's, they're not going into business to lose money. And as painful as this may sound to some people's ears, some jobs are not worth 5 bucks an hour. But here's the deal. You want to you wanna go out there and, and create money? You've got to learn how to create value. And this is something entrepreneurs know a lot about. Richard Lawrence, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a brilliant piece about value creation, Rumpelstiltskin, and the eight-year-old who turns rocks into cash. Now, I'll admit, the reason this caught my eye in the first place was because I remember as a kid, I mean a little kid, you know, six, seven years old, maybe younger than that, going door to door in my neighborhood with pebbles that my friends and I had found in the gutter. They were clean and relatively pretty, and I was trying to sell pebbles for a few pennies here and there. I wasn't very serious about it. I think I got discouraged after a few people told me, now nah, they really weren't interested in, in buying my rocks. So uh, I, I kind of gave up. But this is a great example, and this is a great story from, again, uh, Richard N. Lawrence. He says, most children know the story of the aggressive dealmaker Rumpelstiltskin, who would have been able to claim the queen's firstborn child if not for his loose lips during a premature victory celebration. 
Now, to most ears, the tale seems impossibly fantastical and purely a cautionary tale about making bad promises and the financial concept of being over-leveraged. But he says the underexplored aspect of this fairy tale relates to the seemingly magical ability that Rumpelstiltskin had to turn mere straw into valuable gold. As it turns out, this part of the story is the most believable to economists who regard nearly every activity in an economy through the lens of value creation. He says his eight-year-old goddaughter, Braley, discovered the essence of value creation last weekend during a routine play date with a neighbor. Superficially, she may look like your typical American child. She loves unicorns and reading, but playing with her dog, Hannah, or keeping her younger brother in line, you know, these are things that you would expect of a kid. But he says, Braley is exceptional in the sense that she has discovered the benefits of entrepreneurship and value creation before even finishing elementary school. Now, value creation and entrepreneurship are linked inextricably, coming from the French word for undertaker, literally someone who undertakes an effort. The concept of an entrepreneur is widely understood, and most of us can name an entrepreneur we respect. Value creation, on the other hand, is not quite a mainstream term. Richard Lawrence says it's mainly familiar in the domains of economics and business. Value creation is undertaking activities that create outputs, meaning goods or services, that are more valuable than their inputs, including the raw materials, labor costs, advertising, and other expenses made to bring the goods to customers. Figuratively, value creation is turning straw into gold. Back to Braley. He says on Sunday, she and her friends started digging around the yard for buried treasures, and they curated a collection of pebbles, rocks, pennies, and acorns. Now, between these two kids, the idea was hatched that they could actually sell these items to neighbors by walking door to door. And by the time they were finished, they had collected $58, which they split between them evenly and used immediately to buy treats from a nearby ice cream truck. According to Braley's mother, she came home with a smudge of chocolate on her face holding a small cardboard box containing $27 cash and an assortment of rocks, polished stones, and battered black pennies. Now, these items were doing nothing in the ground. It took the activity of these two girls to extract them from the dirt, clean them up, have the idea that people might want to buy them, and actually go door-to-door to make the sale. That's pure entrepreneurship in the service of value creation. Would you buy rocks and pennies from two neighborhood girls? Eh, maybe not. But some of their neighbors did, and they were rewarded with cash, treats, and a great story. Richard Lawrence says, This sort of activity is what entrepreneurs and businesses perform daily to bring us everything we want and need. Productive economic activities make it so we do not individually have to hunt or gather our food, build or repair our shelters, make our own clothing, unless we really want to. He says every time you hire someone to perform a service or deliver a good, or you are hired yourself, you are engaging in a process of value creation by which both parties to the transaction benefit. The consumer solves his problem and the producer profits by solving it. Value creation is the very definition of a win-win scenario. So the next time you buy something, no matter how mundane, consider how the entire process began with someone having an idea that she could do something that might be more valuable to another person than the cash he had in his pocket. 
And he says, by the next time you see Braley and her friend, you might be asked to buy a hand-drawn picture as they've now diversified their business offerings to artwork. I love to hear success stories like this. I think that's, uh, that is the epitome of, of a kid who's going to have a great chance growing up. And, and the sooner people learn this value of entrepreneurship, the sooner freedom becomes a part of who they are. Let me explain what I mean by this. A lot of people, including myself, for much of my adult life, have what we could term an employee mindset. And we're all more familiar with this than most of us would like to admit. The employee mindset is this. I need someone to give me a job. I need someone to give me a job where I can work, go to work predictably, get a predictable paycheck, but I'm working for them. Now, there's no shame in this, mind you. I'm just telling you, the reason we take that approach is because it's safe, right? A steady paycheck without, you know, a whole lot of ups and downs and, you know, with with just that regular every two weeks or every Friday, you know, I know that there's going to be money in my hand for me showing up and doing what I do. And in, in a real sense, you're creating value for that employer or they wouldn't be paying you. But it's a very different thing from the entrepreneurial mindset, which is I am going to find a way to create value for others and then build that into a money-making proposition. That's where there's risk. Why? Well, because you might fail. And the person with the employee mindset does not want to fail. Now, I use this word carefully. I got called on the carpet for saying this a few years ago, but I, I still stand by it. The, the attitude of the slave <clears throat> is that someone else needs to provide for me. I'll do the work. I'll do whatever it is. You tell me to dig ditches. You tell me to pick cotton. You tell me to assemble widgets or make phone calls, whatever that is. Yes, I'll do it. But there's also a, there's a, an avoidance of responsibility in a sense. And I'm not saying, therefore, quit your job if you're working for someone else. I'm just saying sometimes we, we unnecessarily limit ourselves. The best example I can think of is uh, I have a really, really good friend. Been in broadcast with him for a lot of years. He cannot see himself as anything but a radio guy, which means um, if, if one job goes away, and they inevitably do, that's the nature of the business, he's desperately looking for what's, what's another radio job I can do. And they, this tends to be lower-paying jobs with very limited ability to move beyond it. Now, I contrast that with uh, a few years ago. Oh, my goodness, it's been almost 10 years ago. I was unexpectedly let go from a radio job. That was my first time, by the way, getting blindsided by layoffs. And normally, I would have been the guy. Oh, I better find another radio job. I don't care where it is. I just got to do something in radio. But instead, because I had been pursuing a liberal arts education, because I had been instructed in, in learning to think more like an entrepreneur, I stopped thinking of myself as just a radio guy and started thinking for the very first time, what can I do beside that? And what I found was I could teach, I could write, I could sell. And in fact, I was able to find gainful employment in a very, very short time. And then radio came calling and kind of pulled me back in. It's hard to escape because it really does get in your blood. But my point is, I saw myself differently as a result of that entrepreneurial mindset. And it was the most liberating shift that I can think of. Maybe something you should consider.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I know I'm trying to kind of keep it on a, on a little bit of a brighter note today. I do have some pretty uh, heavy stuff to cover in uh, the second hour of the show. I might even get a little bit heated, but uh, for now, it's great. How are you? <laughs> Nonetheless, I uh, wanted to share something with you. This is kind of one of the interesting silver linings. Um, it's been a hard year for all of us. We've all had to make huge adjustments thanks to uh, COVID-19, the lockdowns and you know the shifting of how we go about things. Everybody's wearing masks everywhere you go. Uh, people getting in fistfights on, on an airplane, apparently because somebody wouldn't wear their mask or wasn't wearing it the way that somebody else wanted them to wear it. Yeah, fist fights. Yeah, this, this is not, a, you know, upward movement of society. We're devolving into something a little more primitive. But back to the positive. What's the silver lining? You hear a lot of talk about the kids. Oh, how this has affected their education, and, you know, what a, what a terrible or difficult thing this has been for the, for the kids. But do you know there is a bright side to what's been happening? And Emma Freire, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says COVID kids may grow up to be libertarians. Now, that actually is going to scare some of the more politically oriented people. Oh, no, they need to be one of they little waste their vote. Okay, just listen, though. Listen to the thinking that uh, may be promoted by what these kids have been through. Emma Freer says the coronavirus crisis hit children as hard as any other segment of the population. All familiar routines were suddenly ripped away from them. Thousands are still doing school online. Many state mask mandates include young children. She says for children old enough to remember it in the future, the year of coronavirus will be a significant event in their childhoods. In fact, they'll probably tell their own children and grandchildren stories about what it was like to live through this time. But how will they look back on this crisis when they reach adulthood? And how will it shape their worldview? For adults, the debate about handling the pandemic has been highly politicized for some time. However, we're now moving into a phase of the reopening where different standards about what is allowed and what isn't will be obvious even to children. For example, she says last week a kind friend wanted to organize a picnic for her three small children. She she prepared little sandwiches and lots of fun snacks, yet when we arrived at our local park, a guard approached us to tell us we couldn't bring food in. Now, this is normally allowed, but it's forbidden during COVID-19 because eating requires removing one's mask. And Emma Freer says her children burst into tears, and her friend and she tried in vain to convince the guard that having a picnic, or convince the kids rather, having a picnic in the living room is fun. But the worst part of the situation, she says, is that we constantly walk by restaurants in our neighborhood that are open for business, both with indoor and outdoor seating. What's the difference between us having a picnic in the park and buying an ice cream cone and eating it on the restaurant terrace? She says, why is one a health hazard and not the other? And she admits she was at a loss to explain this discrepancy to her kids. It's simply unfair. And as young as they are, she says, my kids intuit that. This is because children have a deep-rooted sense of fairness. 
Peter Gray, a professor of psychology, writes in Psychology Today that children grasp early on that fairness is necessary in order to play with each other. Quote, Anyone who has spent much time observing children play independently of adult control knows that they are very concerned with fairness. That's not fair is among the most common phrases you'll hear. And he says there's a simple reason why play must be fair. The fairness doesn't come from some highfalutin moral philosophy nor from deep-seated altruism. Children are neither philosophers nor angels. Fairness comes from the simple reality that play with others is only possible if it is fair. Now, American children are seeing that their schools are still closed, says Emma Friere, but that other types of gatherings are allowed. Some activities are permitted, while others, despite being essentially the same, are forbidden. And depending on their age, these observations will impact them deeply. Because kids realize this is unfair. Not everyone is playing by the same rules. Future research will likely tell us a great deal about which government-imposed restrictions actually combated the virus and which were pointless. She says we'll also have a much better understanding of the side effects of these measures. Adults who were children during this pandemic will likely follow these developments with great interest. Emma Friere says articles about the impact of the pandemic on children tend to focus on the education they've lost due to school closures. But she says it's also worth noting that children are witnessing repeated violations of their innate sense of fairness. And this may well leave them with a sense of mistrust toward institutions and authorities. Is COVID-19 going to raise up a generation of libertarians? Man, I sure hope so. <laughs> I hope it does, and I hope it, uh, it happens sooner than later. All right, I'm going to shift into a little more hardcore phase here and talk about the absurdity of COVID cases. This is from Jeff Deist from the Mises organization, or Mises.org. He says, today's headlines announced Donald Trump and Melania Trump tested positive for COVID-19. Another claims 19,000 Amazon workers got COVID-19 on the job. And he says, both of these pseudo-stories are sure to ignite another absurd media frenzy. And as always, he says, the story keeps changing. Remember ventilators? Flatten the curve. The next two weeks are crucial, etc. Remember Nancy Pelosi in Chinatown back in February, urging everyone to visit? Remember Fauci dismissing masks as useless? They only make you feel safe. Why should we believe anything the political media complex tells us now? So he asks, what do these headlines really mean? What exactly is a COVID case? Since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, most U.S. media outlets have been exceedingly credulous and complicit in their reporting. Journalists almost uniformly promote what we can call the pro-lockdown narrative, which is to wildly exaggerate the risks from COVID-19 to serve a political agenda. Now, they may be motivated to hurt Trump politically or to promote a more socialist new normal or simply to drive more clicks and views. Bad news sells. But the bias is clear and undeniable. And this, is, this explains, he says, why media outlets use the terms case and infection so loosely to the point of actively misinforming the public. All of the endless talk about testing, testing, testing serve to obscure two important facts. First, the tests themselves are almost laughably unreliable in producing both false positives and negatives. And what's the point? Are we going to test people again and again every time they go out to the grocery or bump into a neighbor? 
Secondly, he says, detecting virus particles or droplets in a human's respiratory tract tells us very little. It certainly does not tell us they are sick or transmitting sickness to anyone. Take a perfectly healthy person with no particular symptoms and swab the inside of their nose. If the culture shows the presence of Staphylococcus aureus, do we insist that they have a staph infection? When someone drives to work without incident or accident, do we create statistics about their exposure to traffic? His point is a virus is not a disease. Only a very small percentage of those exposed to the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2, show any kind of acute respiratory symptoms, or what we can call coronavirus disease. He says the only meaningful statistics show the incidence of serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. The single most important statistic among these is the infection fatality rate, or IFR. Data collected through July shows that the IFR for those under age 45 is actually lower than the common flu. The COVID-19 IFR rises for those over 50, but it's hardly a death sentence. And the data does not segregate those with pre-existing health issues caused by obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. If we could see the data only for reasonably healthy people under 50, the numbers would be even more reassuring. Mild or asymptomatic COVID cases are effectively meaningless. The world is full of bacteria and viruses, and sometimes they make us a bit sick for a few days. There are millions of them in the world, all around us, on our skin, in our nose, and respiratory tract, in our organs. We are meant to live with them, which is why we all have immune systems designed to help us coexist and adapt to ever-changing organisms. We develop antibodies naturally, or we attempt to stimulate them through vaccines, but ultimately, our own immune systems have to deal with COVID-19. The virus will always be out there waiting on the other side of any lockdown or mask, so, he says, we might as well get on with it. The bottom line is lockdowns were never justified, either in terms of COVID-19 risk or the staggering economic trade-offs, which will be felt for decades. Jeff Deist points out here, we have all had eight months of life and liberty stolen from us by politicians and their hysteria-promoting accomplices in the media. And he asks, how much more will we accept? I strongly recommend that you read the, the rest of this article. It'll be posted in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhideshow.com. And by the way, feel free to leave a comment if you would. This is The Brian Hyde Show.